This is Transforming Culture, an MBC podcast. I have a heart full of questions, quieting all my suggestions. What is the meaning of Christian in this American life? I'm feeling awfully foolish, spending my life on a message. I look around and I wonder ever if I heard it right. Welcome everyone to our last episode of season one of Transforming Culture. We are thrilled to have had so many people listening and supporting us over the last two months, and we trust that this season will be a resource to you and your family and friends as you seek to transform culture for God. This last episode is about unity in the church, and if I'm speaking honestly, I would not have said that this was considered a controversial cultural issue in any way until about March 2020. I've always thought about denominational differences and stuff like that as minor details, but the pandemic certainly highlighted a lot of the ways that even Christians can differ from one another, and it has caused a lot of pain with denominations, churches, and families. I was grateful that Sean decided to talk about this as our last topic for the summer and brought everything together quite nicely. Sean Sheeran is a pastor, and so he's had to wrestle through these unity issues so much in the last three years and has brought a lot of personal attention to it. My prayer is that it will benefit all of you as well. Originally from Scotland, Sean moved to Canada as a teenager in 2001. A non-Christian at the time, he was invited to attend Hespler Baptist Church in Cambridge, Ontario, and through the preaching of the gospel and the friendship of Christians, God showed him his need to repent of his sin and trust in Christ for salvation. This was an altogether different experience and message from his Roman Catholic upbringing. And from there, Sean attended Heritage Bible College. Graduating the same year, he became full-time staff at Hespler Baptist as associate pastor. In 2013, he made the transition to serving as lead pastor. He's been married to his high school sweetheart, Meredith, for 15 years, and together they have four children. When not reading or chipping away at his MDiv at Heritage, almost finished, you'd find Sean and his family hiking, biking, rock climbing, paddleboarding, making music, or playing board and video games. All right, enjoy Sean's talk about unity in the church. Thank you, Luke, for starting us off. And it is a delight to see the efforts that have been made by NBC through the summer to address the issues of our day. And with God's help, where I pastor in Cambridge, Ontario, we seek to do the same in our local church context also. And my understanding, I might not have all of these right, my understanding is that the following topics have been covered over the last number of weeks. So there was political correctness and civic engagement, our woke world, deconstruction, LGBTQ issues, I think abortion, am I right on that? Uh, Race and color, social justice. And the moment I learned about these transforming culture seminars and I saw the list of proposed topics, I emailed Luke almost right away to ask if I could cover as a conclusion the necessity of unity for the sake of cultural transformation. The necessity of unity for the sake of cultural transformation. And first let me explain why I believe this is a crucial topic by drawing on two articles written a year apart. The first was called The Six-Way Fracturing of Evangelicalism, which was sent to me by a pastor friend of mine back in, it was published on June 7, 2021. And then the authors wrote an article a year later reflecting on the six-way fracturing of evangelicalism and why much of what they wrote a year ago they still believe to hold true. So I want to start by putting a finger on um, that what I believe they do a great job of putting their finger on the issue, the problem that we're facing in the church in North America and Canada as well in particular. And from there, I'm going to begin to talk about unity. But I need help. 
because I don't want this to be merely theoretical, I actually need six brave people just to come up for the first little bit and just sit in one of these chairs. And we're not going to get any farther unless six brave people do that. So you were like, just, I, we didn't set this up, did we? You just came in. So really, I need six people to come and sit in these chairs. What's your name, brother? Todd. Todd? Okay. And Sean. Nice to meet you, Todd. Five more. And this, I'm good with silence. The podcast won't like silence. Uh, so I'm good with it. And I'm just going to make you feel uncomfortable. What's that? <laughs> you edit out silence. Good. And anything else that I say that isn't decent. So good. Thank you. Uh, sit in any chair. It doesn't matter. Thank you. I appreciate your help. That's very useful. Okay. One more. Someone else has got to make their way right up here to the front. It's okay for men to lead. I'm fine with that, but I'm glad you're here, sister. I'm glad you're here. Seriously, I mean that. I mean that. Okay, I'm going to try and get names. I'm just going to come down here for a minute. So just so you know, where you're sitting has no bearing on what I'm going to talk about. I don't know these brothers and sister, so nothing of what I'm going to say is a commentary on them. All right? It may or may not be true, but your name? Peter. Peter? Nice to meet Peter. Wayne. Wayne, Peter, Wayne, Todd, Ruth, Ruth, Robert, Robert, Bill. Bill. Okay, Peter, Wayne, Todd, Ruth, Robert, Robert, and Bill. Okay, I'll do my best. I'm going to give you these six categories from this article, uh, the six-way fracturing of evangelicalism. You can switch a slide for now. And I'm going to just tell you how the article begins. The last few years, I'm quoting here, have highlighted major differences in how, it's an American article, but I'll Canadianize it. The last few years have highlighted major differences in how Americans have processed the same cultural moments. Every month seems to bring another national Rorschach test, which is the blob test. You know, you got the same two things and people look at it, what do you see? Uh, Every month seems to bring another one of those to how we parse the times. Unlike these tests, unlike these, uh, the, the tests, these national events are not always neutral blobs of cultural ink. The same rending of the fabric of America is also happening, maybe not so quietly, within evangelicalism. Now, I want to bring it north of the border into our own context, and we could merely list the following topics as examples of the same fracturing in Canadian society and Canadian evangelicalism. Mask mandates, vaccines, lockdowns, freedom convoys, residential schools, the federal election, the provincial election, how children should be educated, how to respond to the issues addressed in this time slot each week of the summer, political, social, and cultural responses to the overturning of Roe versus Wade, racism, social justice, Trump, Trudeau, and the list could likely go on. In April of 2021, Timothy Dalrymple, editor of Christianity Today, wrote the following, New fractures are forming within the American evangelical movement, fractures that do not run along the usual regional, denominational, ethnic, or political lines. Couples, families, friends, and congregations once united in their commitment to Christ are now dividing over seemingly irreconcilable views of the world. In fact, they are not merely dividing, but becoming incomprehensible to one another. And I've seen it happen. See it happen on Christian Twitter. I've watched close friendships among brothers and sisters end. I've personally lost pastor friends who have implicitly wrote me off under the labels of false shepherd or coward or faithless. I've seen many people come and go from our church. By God's grace, our church grew during the COVID years, but we did see some people leave as well. Recently, I talked with a pastor of a church that saw a 35% change in membership over the last two years. I've had people thank me for not being overly political in my preaching, whatever that means, and I've had other people request that our church tell people who they should vote for in recent elections. People were glad when I addressed the residential school system in a sermon in an article I wrote for the Gospel Coalition Canada, and I had a handful of emails from others expressing why I shouldn't have spoken and written the way that I did, and to be fair, some of their critique was accurate. I've also seen people attend our church from different denominations, such as the Christian Reformed Church, which before was a much bigger move than it seems today, because for Christian Reformed brothers and sisters, the baptism issue is a big difference for them to come from where they are to a Baptist church. But I've seen people willingly and happily come to our church because they were driven out of their own congregation for having different views on how to respond to the pandemic. I've seen mockery 
and slander and ridicule of false websites and social media profiles be created to slander and ridicule people who are my friends and that I love in Christ. And some of that has been shared and promoted by people that I used to look up to and respect. All this to say, what our brothers and sisters south of the border are observing in these articles, as captured in the six-way fracturing of evangelicalism, is not just an American issue, it's a Canadian one as well. And if we had time, perhaps we would be able to go around the room and see how that aligned with everyone else's experiences and observations. Now, before we understand, we consider the biblical responses to this cultural moment and why it's necessary for us to be united for the sake of cultural transformation, I just want to dig a little bit deeper into the nature of the problem. And I'm going to share with you the categories which are offered not to label, but to diagnose to help us understand the lines of this so-called fracturing. And so that's why I have these six friends who are up here to help me. And I am going to just show some, if we skip to the next slide, and then I think there's another build after that. We're going to get a table up here, and I'm going to give you, um, yeah, is there, a, that's the old one. Did you get the new one at all? Can you read that? Is that too small? Too small. There's a new one that I emailed. I don't know if it's possible to switch that over. I emailed it earlier today. What I'll do is I'll just talk through it for a moment. So, Peter. Peter for argument's sake, is a neo-fundamental evangelical. And Peter has deep concerns about both political and theological liberalism. He has deep concerns uh, of threats within the church. He has deep worries with the church's drift towards liberalism. And he cares deeply about secular ideologies finding their way into the church. Outside of the church, Peter is concerned by the culture's increasing hostility to Christianity, most prominently from mass media, social media, and the government. So this is where Peter is. And again, this may or may not be anything related to how he actually thinks, just so we're clear. Now here we have Wayne. Wayne is a mainstream evangelical. And historically, this term has been Protestants who hold to, you know, they believe that conversion is important and activism in the Bible as being central and the cross. And the emphasis for Wayne is on the fulfillment of the Great Commission. When it comes to threats within the church, he shares some of the concern, for, as Peter does, of the secular rights influence on Christianity, including the destructive pull of Christian nationalism. But Wayne's far more concerned about the left's influence and the desire that God's people can have to assimilate into the world because the world is so hostile. So that's where Wayne is. And then here, we've got Todd, in the, not in the middle because there's six of you. Todd is a neo-evangelical. And he is someone who sees himself as a global evangelical. On doctrine, he would agree with Wayne and Peter, but he would have some philosophy of ministry differences. Within the church, he's highly concerned by conservative Christianity's acceptance of Trump and things like that. And uh, he's concerned also of the failure to engage on topics of race and sexuality in helpful ways. He's not totally abandoned the evangelical tradition and identification but he feels like he's a little bit homeless. There's equal concern or slightly more depending on the person that the threat of the left and the right to Christians seeking to live peaceful and quiet, quiet lives in all godliness. So that's Todd. Next we have Ruth, and Ruth is a post-evangelical. And if you can't get it, don't worry about it. You can put the old one up, at least we have the categories. But Ruth is a post-evangelical, and she has left evangelicalism from a self-identification standpoint, and she rejects the evangelical label, although she would agree with the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, the sort of ancient creeds of the church, Ruth is a little bit more deconstructed than the neo-evangelical, and Ruth would be more vocal in her critique of Peter and Wayne and Todd, and some of them, like Ruth, would remain firmly in Protestant circles. Some would have gone over to mainline Catholic or Orthodox traditions while holding on to the main old creeds of the faith. Concerning threats within the church, Ruth is focused on abuse and corruption and hypocrisy, Christian nationalism, the secular right. Outside of the church, Ruth is primarily concerned about matters of injustice, inequity, the secular right, and to a lesser extent, the radical secular left. And many people who are sitting where Ruth is sitting 
are sitting there because they've had difficult experiences in evangelical churches and they feel like they need to physically remove themselves from that sort of uh, tribe, if you will. And then I don't have these up here on the slides because they don't say much about it in the article, but sorry, brother, remind me of your name. Robert Robert is here. He would be de-churched but still holds on to Christ in some way or shape or form. There's still some orthodox Christian beliefs that he holds to, but he's no longer, you wouldn't find him in a church setting on a Sunday morning. And then Bill over here, which I know is not true of you, brother, Bill is de-churched and deconverted. He's walked away entirely, and he has no, nothing left of evangelical beliefs whatsoever. And so these are the six lines that uh, the, the writers of this article say that evangelicalism is fracturing over. And I'm going to focus on, I don't care, I care about these uh, two categories over here, fives and sixes, but I'm going to talk a little bit more about ones, twos, threes, and fours, and how this begins to create problems within our churches and within our relationships. So over here, sorry for the rep, Peter, Peter is a one, just like neo-fundamental evangelicals. He's a one. But Peter thinks that Todd has compromised the gospel by importing worldly ideas of social justice into the church, and he thinks that the church that Todd goes to is in danger of apostasy because of the ways that they're addressing the issues in the culture. And what this has amounted to in our Canadian context is, is loud voices decrying the response of many churches, and you get pastors calling other pastors cowardly, faithless, they're compromising, all those different types of things. And these issues, if you put Peter and Todd in a room together and they get talking about this stuff, they're going to get heated pretty quickly on the issue of race and politics and on the intersection between politics and moral issues. And so in a Canadian context, a one, Peter can't wrap his head around Todd not voting for a pro-life candidate or not voting for a People's Party candidate or abstaining or voting for someone else. Peter's struggles to understand that Todd would be an activist on anything else except the issue of abortion. Just can't, can't get it. So they can't get together. On the other hand, Todd is struggling with what he would see in Peter's tribe of a, a compromise and putting into positions of power people who are morally corrupt and have seemingly no character and moral track record. And they don't like the fact that Peter is pressuring Todd to vote and be political in a certain way. And it becomes difficult when these two guys are actually brothers in the same family and you have havoc. The upshot of these things means significant philosophy of ministry differences over how to contextualize the gospel in this cultural moment. So they disagree over mercy and justice and strategies and tactics and culture. And in many instances, the differences between Peter and Todd, they're going to prove to be really difficult to overcome. Now, twos and fours, Wayne and Ruth. Let's talk about them for a minute. Now you're both in the hot seat. And I apologize if I'm inadvertently touching on any buttons here. But again, I don't know you, so that's, that's ignorance for me. Now, Wayne has a hard time understanding Ruth's main concerns. There's a misalignment between the two groups as to the extent of hypocrisy, racism, political entanglements, and abuse. Some of these differences arise from diverging experiences between Wayne and Ruth. And it seems like people in Ruth's position have experienced church hurt or maybe even secondhand trauma because someone in their family or one of their close friends has experienced hurt from a church. And Ruth feels that Wayne is in an establishment is very resistant to reform or change. And Ruth is frustrated because Wayne just doesn't seem to get the problem of being silent or inactive or unwilling to see problems that are so obvious to her. So, for example, the rise and fall of Mars Hill about Mark Driscoll would create in Ruth a desire for greater accountability within leadership structures in the church so that certain abuses are not perpetuated. Some read what is happening at the meeting house and they want to ensure from moral outrage that sheep are protected from shepherds who would devour their flocks. And if, if Wayne isn't going to be as concerned about that as Ruth thinks that he should be, then they have a problem. 
And the upshot of these things means that they will increasingly struggle to occupy the same churches. They'll have disagreements about where the problems exist and the extent of those problems and what things need to be done to address those matters. And if these two brothers, Peter and Todd, have differences, and Wayne and Ruth have differences, you can just imagine Peter and Ruth's differences. They're even farther apart. And herein lies the problem. All of this is problematic, and I would suggest deeply grievous, because fracturing along these lines is to divide on matters that are not of first importance. Please don't hear me wrongly. I'm not saying that these issues are unimportant. They are, some of them deeply so. But here's the challenge. For my part, I share some of Peter's concerns. Actually, a great deal of Peter's concerns. And I might speak in a way that Peter's like, yeah, he's in the same camp as I am. I hear that in what he's saying as he preaches on a Sunday morning. But at the same time as that, I'm probably more aligned with Wayne. My greatest concern is for the Great Commission. I believe that people need to be born again. They need to hear the gospel. And so I want to emphasize that. And yes, am I concerned about some of the secularization and the pressures that's coming as Peter does? Of course I am. Yet at the same time, what I find difficult is that I have non-Christian family members who don't live in North America and they throw the term evangelical at me as a dirty word because they watch what happens in the United States. And I find myself wanting to distance away from the term evangelical because it's become more political for some people than theological. So I get where Todd is. And at the same time, over here with Ruth, I am extremely exercised about the abuse of spiritual authority and sexual abuse that happens within the church. And I believe that we need to be loud about this issue. And so on a given Sunday morning, I might say something, Ruth's like, well, he's in my camp. And she might take to Twitter and post something. And then Peter sees it and he's like, wait a second, I was away this Sunday. What's going on with Sean? Is he going woke or what? You see the problem? And then we begin to fracture. Not along theological lines like we used to, but along totally different lines. You guys have been great. You can all go sit down. Thank you. Appreciate your help. It, I hope it helped for this to have a name and a face and not just a category or a label. And all of this fracturing is going on, and I didn't mention, I'm very concerned about this brother here being in a healthy local church, sitting under the sun of God's word, which isn't happening. And then this person, they need to believe the gospel. And if all they're doing is looking down the row and seeing these four unable to get their act together, why would they ever want to darken the door of a church again? What we might be seeing and experiencing is what Paul addresses at the beginning of 1 Corinthians. Some followed Paul, some followed Apollos, some followed Peter, and then the super spiritual people in the church. Why follow Christ? And this division is problematic. Why? Because unity and evangelism, unity and cultural transformation go hand in hand. How do we know this? We know this because of how Jesus prayed for us, his followers in John 17, which I'm going to have some of it on the slide for you to see for yourselves. By all means, the unity that Jesus prayed for ought to be observable in local churches as we live together, bond by the name of Christ and supernaturally empowered community that reveals to the world that Jesus truly is the Christ. You see that there. I do not ask for these only, that is his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that it's not unity for the sake of unity, friends. It's unity for the sake of mission, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He goes on, the glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. This is how our Lord prayed for us. And you see this unity is actually rooted in the fact that our God is triune and has existed in perfect harmony from eternity past and will to eternity future as Father, Son, and Spirit. And he's praying that we will reflect something about his character in the way in which we engage and live together as his followers. 
and he's praying that the outcome of this would say something to the watching world about the fact uh, about the love the father has for the son and that he sent him to be the savior so that's why i'm saying that 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 unity is necessary for the sake of cultural transformation because jesus prayed this way that we would be one twice he states his very clear purpose that the glory of the Father and the Son be evidenced by the power of the Spirit and gospel communities that serve as imitations of the eternal love of intra-Trinitarian relationships. The difference, I don't know if you've ever gone to a symphony orchestra or something like that, the difference is the difference between showing up before the show begins and you hear all of the musicians warming up and they're not paying any attention to each other at that point. But if you listen close enough, you can hear among the sort of cacophony, you can hear that there is some parts of the melodies and the tunes that you're going to hear. But people are coming and going, ushers are seating people, the lights, the house lights are still on, people might be going to get a drink or going to the washroom or checking their phone, no one's really paying any attention. But when the lights go down and the conductor stands up and everybody starts to play together, then people will sit on the edge of their seat and pay attention. That is what is supposed to happen in the church. Not so that we can feel great about being united, but that people can look and say, there is something going on there that doesn't make human sense. That Ruth and Peter would share the Lord's Supper together, even though they have significant differences on how they might do or say or approach certain topics. There must be something else going on here. So we too must pray for such submission to the Lord and one another so that praise and glory goes to the Father and the Son whose name we bear. And when Christians fail to live in unity with one another, we actually bring reproach upon our triune God and we besmirch his glorious name in the eyes of a watching world. And not only that, confusion is spread regarding the great love of God. So if we long for cultural transformation, and my sense is that you do because you're here. Some of you, it sounds like I've been here for all of the sessions. I love that you do. I'm so encouraged that you do. And if we would long for cultural transformation, then let us pursue this by pursuing unity. And I have just 10 rapid fire. If I don't get through them all, Maybe someone can ask me a question about one I glanced over so I can talk about it a little bit more within the time frame. But I want to just run through these very quickly. If, if we long for tra cultural transformation, first, let's pray. When was the last time we actually prayed as our Lord did for unity in the church so that as people see how we live together, it would say something about who he is. Pray. Pray for unity. Pray for it in your households. Pray for it in the household of faith that you belong to, the local church that you belong to. Pray earnestly for unity. Like set a reminder on your phone honestly for like a certain time throughout the week where you just stop and you pray as Jesus prayed in John 17. Secondly, if you long for cultural transformation, well, it's contingent upon unity as our Lord has indicated in his prayer Secondly, as we pray for unity, let us understand our union in Christ is created by God. It exists. And thirdly, let's understand that our union in Christ is based on the gospel. Here's a list of what holds us together in the church and to which we must cling with the strength of God's grace. There is one body over which Christ has had. There's one spirit who indwells each of our brothers and sisters in Christ. There's one hope, and it's the gospel of our blessed Lord. There's one Lord, Jesus Christ. There's one faith. There's one baptism. There is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. That's what Paul writes in Ephesians 4, and you notice it's Trinitarian. The spirit is mentioned, the Lord, which is certainly Christ, is mentioned, and God the Father is mentioned. This is rooted in the very nature of who God is. And with that list in mind, taken from Ephesians 4, 4 to 6, here Paul is immediately preceding words. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We maintain it. You notice we don't create it. God creates it in Christ. If we are united to Christ by faith, we are united to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, and that unity is unbreakable. 
If someone is truly in Christ, even though they might never be able to speak a a kind word together or occupy the same church for whatever reason, well, they will be among that number who will gather around the throne together. You can't break unity that God creates. It exists. It's real. But we're to ensure that it is lived out observably so that we are actually living according to who we are. And that is to be maintained regardless of the secondary differences that might occupy our hearts, our minds, and our consciences. And as we do encounter differences, let us fourthly be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Social media does not seem like a good place to do this. The more significant the conversation, the more personal the medium of conversation should be. Tucked away, Tim Challies is the first person who ever pointed this out to me in one of his books. At the end of 2nd and 3rd John, John notes the limits of the communication technology of his day. He says at the end of both of those letters, there's much more I would rather say to I have to say to you, but I would rather say it face to face. He puts down the pen, the ink, the parchment. This isn't good enough anymore. We have to talk. And I believe that we should put down the mediated ways that we communicate with one another far more and actually face to face converse, especially about difficult things. Fifthly, we need to make room for conscience by becoming familiar with Romans 14, which part in part reads, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who despises, uh, who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Brothers and sisters may in good faith come to different conclusions than ourselves on various matters, and we need to make space for that. The scriptures do. You can read uh, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 on your own time and see that Paul has to write about this in two different places. Very quickly, next slide if you could. Humble yourself, you may be wrong. Proverbs 18.2, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Proverbs 26.12, you see a man who is wise in his own eyes, there's more hope for a fool than him. Proverbs 28.26, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. We might be wrong. And entertaining that idea might actually go a long way sometimes. Seventhly, look for God's grace at work in the lives of others. In the book of Revelation, which I know a brother earlier in the summer dealt with the seven letters to the seven churches, I believe there's only one exception. But as the Lord Jesus Christ addresses those churches, which he walks among, he walks among the lampstand, which is what the churches are. As he addresses each of those churches and all, not all of them, but most of them have something they need to repent of. It's never where he begins. He always encourages them first. You notice that? Even the Lord doesn't lead off, except in extreme circumstances like Laodicea is the only one. He doesn't lead off. He sees evidence of grace and he draws attention to it before he draws attention to correction. Paul does the same thing in his letter to the Corinthian church and the Corinthian church was a mess. And he begins, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's how he begins his letter. So look, please for evidences of God's grace in the lives of others before being so quick to snipe and bite and devour and so on. Eighth, eight, avoid foolish controversies. Paul warns his pastoral proteges about this. Second Timothy 2, 23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Titus 3, 9, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Nine, avoid people who stir up division. There have been times over the last two years where reading scripture has meant for me that I should no longer engage with that person. It's not, the scripture just constrained me. The scriptures are very serious about those who stir up division. And Paul warns Titus about it. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing 
that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Sometimes we need to walk away. And 10, look for multi-directional leaders. Follow multi-directional leaders, become multi-directional leaders. What does this mean? This is a phrase from Trevin Wax. And if I can just take a couple more minutes, Luke, is that okay? He writes this, the one directional leader is like a shepherd who is skillful in spotting and thwarting threats to the sheep that come from only one direction of the field. This leader recognizes either the danger of liberalism or the threat of fundamentalism and gets energized by fighting a one-sided battle while unintentionally leaving the flock vulnerable to problems coming from the opposite side. So in our little analogy here, the pastor of Peter's church is very good at observing the threats that are coming from the left, but totally ignorant of the fact that there are false shepherds in wolves in sheep's clothing, which is Ruth's concern. We don't just have locks on our front doors, do we? We've got locks on the back doors and we've got locks on the windows because we don't think a threat's going to come from one place. And a good shepherd, a multi-directional leader will understand that there are all sorts of places that threats can come from and they won't be afraid to address them no matter how people might categorize them as being this, that, or the other thing or not being this, that, or the other thing. And we need to find and follow such individuals. Trevin Wax goes on, a multi-directional leader in contrast can fend off threats from more than one direction. They hold up the scriptures and fearlessly proclaim truths that get to the root of our sins, failures, and dysfunctions, no matter what political or theological categories get crossed. They do not let fear dictate their theological statements or determine their cultural posture. We need leaders with dexterity and discipline to challenge problematic positions, no matter where they come from. That is so important, what he's saying here. Paul warned the Ephesian elders, from among your own selves, people will arise up and they will devour the flock. And it happens too often. I had a great conversation with a sister this morning and she was just lamenting, why does it happen so often? Why do we have Mark Driscoll and James McDonald and, and uh, Bruxy Cavey and Ravi Zacharias? Why do we have these issues? It seems like we're not paying attention to all of the different places where the threats can come from. And it actually contributes to this fracturing if someone will only beat the one drum over and over, you might gather a crowd, you could start a following, you could start a movement, but if in the back door, there's all sorts of things that are coming in to destroy the people, oh my, my, it is not faithful at all in any way. In the midst of all of this, I would encourage us to see what Francis Schaeffer calls our golden opportunity. I'll, I'll leave you with this. I have one other closing illustration. Maybe after the q and I'll, I'll throw that in. These excellent words are embedded in my mind and they are entirely appropriate for the contemporary moment. I first came across them in John Piper's Contending for Our All, which is about the lives of Athanasius, John Owen, and J. Gresham Machen. And I've read these words many times since and I commend them to you. There's a little bit of a quote before the one that's up here. So just listen for a moment. He writes this in an essay called The Mark of a Christian. He says, before a watching world, an observable love in the midst of difference will show a difference between Christians' differences and other people's differences. The world may not understand what the Christians are disagreeing about, but they will very quickly understand the difference of our differences from the world's difference if they see us having our differences in an open and observable love on a practical level. So if we see, even on an online forum, Ruth and Peter having a respectful dialogue where they actually disagree with one another, but there's observable love, now that is something to see. And the world is fracturing all around us, and I think we've just followed into the vitriol, uh, which is beneath us as the people of God. Shaver's writing on Jesus' words here, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He goes on, as a matter of fact, we have a greater possibility of showing what Jesus is speaking about here in the midst of our differences than we do if we are not differing. Obviously, we ought not to go looking for differences among Christians. There are enough without looking for more. No kidding, Francis. But even so, and here's the quote, it is in the midst of a difference that we have our golden opportunity. When everything is going well, and we're all standing around in a nice little circle. There's not much to be seen by the world. But when we come to the place where there is a real difference, 
and we exhibit uncompromised principles, but at the same time observable love, then there is something that the world can see, something they can use to judge that these are really Christians and that Jesus has indeed been sent by the Father, which is the goal, isn't it? It's not unity, it's mission, so that people would know that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. This is our opportunity. And as we pursue unity with God's help, I believe that we will be able to live it out. It's supernatural. We need the Spirit's help. And so first and foremost, if you remember anything, humble yourself. Let us humble ourselves and pray as our Lord did for unity for the sake of cultural transformation. Sean did such a good job at the end of the summer wrapping things up, and I'm so glad he was able to do that on the podcast as well. We chatted last summer after his presentation to the NBC community in the chapel, and I'm grateful for his insight as someone who has had to walk the unity piece himself through the last few years. I hope you enjoy our conversation about unity in the church. Sean, thank you so much for being here tonight. Uh, I know that it's been a long day for you. You taught this morning at NBC, then yep. here at Transforming Culture tonight, and then you had the public Q&A, and then about 40 minutes of people asking you questions in a line, sure. eventually to peel them all away from you so I could steal Thank you, you for, for doing this. that. I've got your back anytime. <laughs> you just call me from Hespler. <laughs> Get down the rock. I need the, yeah, I'll yeah, give you the yeah. signal, the, the, the back call. In front of you, you know, <laughs> sure. Unity is hard. Yes, it is. Um, and that is something that you made very clear tonight in all sorts of different ways, which is good. I think it's sometimes good to acknowledge that something that on the outside should be easy. We can get along. Yes. Is really hard to do. And, you know, go back to the very beginnings of the church. People are right. dividing. And I think you mentioned it during the Q&A tonight. Like most of the New Testament is written about divisions and problems. Yes, it is. That can be so discouraging sometimes. And I guess one of my questions as we start off here today, you know, is it okay to disagree with all this stuff that we've got going on? You know, how do we, how are we okay with holding it all together when unity just seems so hard? Sure. Uh, let me start by saying what gives me hope in the midst of the difficulty that we contend with, which is that when I read in the book of Revelation and Revelation 5, Revelation 7, or even, you know, scripture speaking about the bride being presented to the bridegroom without spot or wrinkle or blemish. I know there's a day coming mm. on God's cosmic calendar, a day that is known only to him, when that will happen. We're told that it will happen. And so what we're getting right now in the midst of the... Uh, you know, we're still plagued by the temptations of the world. We still have the indwelling flesh. There's still the devil to contend with, though he is a vanquished foe and his time is short and so is rage is great. I realize that, but we're in the midst of this and we're getting a front row seat to uh, uh, God sanctifying, redeeming his bride. And it is messy and it's painful and it's agonizing and it's lamentable. There's grief in the midst of it, but we know that the day is coming when she will be perfect. And that at least gives me hope to press on in the midst of it. And I'm a part of that. I'm a part of what needs to be sanctified. You're a part, everyone listening is a part of that, which is needing to be further sanctified into conformity to Christ. And so knowing that is going to happen, uh, I think should help us persevere with one another in figuring out these difficult things, because the day will come when we will sing with one voice, the new song worthy as the lamb. And I'm really glad to know that's true. So that's just a hopefully uh, yeah. encouraging word nice, to begin with. Nice way with. to start with hope. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, um, it makes me wonder, a lot of people outside the church sure. look at denominational difference. And I sure. this maybe is like a softball to start sure. off some yeah. Q&A. Is it okay to disagree with other Christians who denominationally don't feel the same? I mean, you can look at differences in baptism, differences sure. in what you think about the Lord's Supper, communion, sure. Eucharist, sure. You know, yep. whatever you want to call yep. it. Yep. Is it okay to be okay with those differences or should we be pursuing people even within the church? How are you feeling about that? That's a really good question. And I believe that people hold these convictionally. Mm -hmm. And I think we should hold our convictions without apology um, I want to hold the sort of secondary or tertiary issues in a more open hand, realizing that brothers and sisters 
many of which are more gifted, intelligent, brighter, experienced than I am, come to different conclusions. But I, I want to hold my convictions seriously because I've come to them, hopefully with a, you know, good in good faith by studying God's word. And because they're my convictions, yeah, am I wanting to have conversations with other brothers and sisters on those issues with respect and, and love and say, I think you might be wrong about this. You think I might be wrong about this. Let's talk about it. You might change my mind. I might change your mind. Because at the end of the day, someone's right and someone's wrong. I don't think on some of these different issues, yeah. right? We can't you know all your be. Truth and my truth. Yeah, truth. yeah, yeah. So uh, I guess a day will come when we'll realize all the things that we were wrong and right about. Hmm. And if we are, you know, convicted about what we hold to. So, I mean, I'm convictionally a Baptist. Uh, am I shy or apologetic about that? No, not at all. And would I be willing to sit down with a Presbyterian or Christian Reformed brother and sister and say, hey, here's where I'm coming out on this. Here's where you're coming out on this. And here's why. Uh, I think those are good and, and valuable conversations. So long as we remember at the end of the day, what we do agree on, yeah. which is far greater than what we disagree on. So, yeah. And then we have to be able to function right in local churches. I, I don't know how it would work to be in an environment. And some maybe people do where you baptize infants and you baptize only believers. You just have to function those ways uh, in the context of a local church. But at the same time, I'm going to pray for my Presbyterian brother in the city over that the Lord will bless his ministry in his church, even though we might disagree on some of those things. So is it okay? But I, yes, but I think it's also important that we communicate the observable ways in which we are united, even while we have conversations or we operate in different places because of the differences. So. Yeah, I loved what you said tonight. Humble yourself. You may be wrong. Sure. <laughs> you know, just sure. approaching it and understanding with a sense of humility. Um, you also talked about avoiding foolish controversies and yeah. avoiding people who stir up division. Sure. And that, that piqued my interest. I was glad you said it because um, there's so much today where people are looking for the quick catchphrase that gets yep. someone's attention. Sure. Um, you know, I wrote about that in one of the recent NBC magazine articles okay, where you. I just said, you know, I'm, I'm guilty of it too. You know, you see a snapshot of something. I don't personally have any social media anymore, which yes. I'm grateful for myself. Sure. <laughs> But you can't help but sometimes hear like, did you hear what so-and-so said about sure. this or that or the other thing? And it's this great witty phrase. Right. And yet it stirs up division. Yes. I'm wondering maybe if, if you can help give me your thoughts on what it's like to stir up division for the purpose of unity. I was thinking about that tonight because sometimes we Good say question. things almost to like, um, like throw it out there just to see how people respond. Sure. And then, sure. um, yeah, does that, do you know what I mean there? Like we we sometimes say things and we say, but is that what I really mean? You know, right. what do it, we do with people who are kind of, bold and brash and and they say these things you know we can all think of a pastor or theologian who said something where we go sure. oh he said that sure we're like oh but i get why he said it sure yeah uh again i uh i don't think social media helps us because you never know who you're engaging with mm. right that's one of the problems is that everyone's the audience and that's one of the reasons why i don't like it so i might say something like that in the context of my congregation that i'm shepherding that I really might need to do to provoke people in a way that they need to be provoked. But if that then gets taken into a context where everyone's the audience and that becomes confusing or distorted or, uh, you know, create some type of controversy, then I really don't think that it's helpful. And so I'm not saying that people shouldn't have engagements on issues on social media, but I wonder sometimes if, we were much more locally minded when it comes to pastors, shepherds, leaders, and shepherding, as Peter says, the flock of God that is among us. Mm. So I have a particular people in view and I want to preach to them. I don't want to preach to the internet. I don't want to cause controversy online about this issue to create a following or that type of thing. I want to address this congregation because that's the congregation I'm responsible for. And uh, so I, it may not be wise. Is there anything, is there situations where I can imagine it might be a good thing? Sure. But is it something I'm going to do? No, I don't think so. Because I just have enough to do with caring for my own flock. Mm -hmm. And I sometimes don't feel I'm doing that adequately, uh, let alone caring about some of the things that might be out there that other people are contending with. So some people have bigger platforms than I do. 
And sure, I can understand why they might do or say or write some of the things that they do. Um, but in a polarized age, I'm just not really sure what good fruit comes from it to say something you know, provocative or I think sometimes pastors are guilty of absolutizing things mm. and mm. raising it to such a level that maybe it ought not to be raised. And it might've been helpful to say something that was a little bit more nuanced and have a less heated discussion about it than to create some type of fanfare and then to have, you know, kind of a, uh, create a stir about it. I'm not always sure what the value of that might be, I yeah. guess is what I'm saying. So. No, it's good. I've, I've been reading Gavin Ortland's The Right Hills to Die On. Oh, lately. okay. And uh, actually, ironically, his story is very interesting because he grew up, I think, I remember it correctly in the Presbyterian church mm-hmm. and then moved towards somewhere else, then moved towards Baptist. But every time he encountered a doctrine that is he personally felt convicted, <laughs> sure. he couldn't stick with that denomination. And I, I think he's in a, no, you know what? I'm not even going to say, he, I, I can't remember sure. what denomination he was actually ordained in. Right. Um, but, but his point in all of that is that there's a lot of things that actually hold us together. Yes. And uh, a thing that I've been reflecting on over the last couple of years, especially through the pandemic is we live in an increasingly post-Christian era where do. people don't have that's the right. underlying framework of Christian doctrine and Agreed. teaching. And so instead of looking for division amongst each other, we really should be looking for more points of unity because right. increasingly, I, I don't know that it's there's less and less Christians. I think there's less and less people pretending to be Christians or being sure. culturally Christian sure. because it's no longer culturally important to be a Christian. No, it isn't. 50 years ago, if you wanted to sell insurance in a small town in Idaho, you better right. go to church right. because people will trust that you're a good insurance salesman yeah, as opposed to a fraudulent right. one. Right. I, you know, I don't know any insurance salesman <laughs> for the record in sure. case this platform becomes a <laughs> Yeah, because we don't know who yeah. we're talking to, right? I've just offended all the salesmen, <laughs> insurance salesmen in That's Idaho. Right. <laughs> Can you talk to me a little bit? Like, I guess maybe I was, this is what I think about this so much. Like, where do I draw the line? If I'm working in, I'm going to make up think, something, you know, working in a soup kitchen in my town, Sure. with a bunch of united folk and catholics and presbyterians and anglicans and evangelical baptists and you know all whoever charismatic folk i can kind of get behind that and say like well we're feeding the poor and, sure. and across the board i think most christians would say it is important to care for the poor in fact jesus tells us to sure but do i worship with them right, right? this this happened at our church uh in gravenhurst where we attend we did a Good Friday service. Three different churches okay. came together. There's yep. a Pentecostal church, our church, and another little church uh, denomination. I can't remember anymore. And a man started worshiping through dance. Okay. And all the kids at our church were like, what, what is, is happening right sure. now, right? Sure. And we're kind of saying, no, it's okay. Like, this is a different sure. view. But should do you have any thought about, like, drawing lines between denomination or even within the church sometimes? I know, uh, unfortunately, Unfortunately, fortunately, tonight there was lots of people when we talked about unity wanting to talk about the pandemic yes. and COVID, which you know is good. We should be talking about that, sure. and I want to make sure we're talking about unity. But sometimes we have to draw hard lines in the sand and say, "Actually, I can't cross this because of my conscience." Sure. You mentioned it tonight. Yeah, I I I do think that there are uh, occasions like that. We've similarly done. Um, you know, joint services, or we might have collaborated with people on certain things. Some issues, I think it's easier to be what some people, some people might call sort of co-belligerents on. So there might be uh, sanctity of life issues or caring for Mm. the poor issues, or there might be, yeah, sure, even some legal or political issues where we might find alignment with others where we might disagree on theological matters or church polity matters or those types of things. And might there be ways to sort of band together for the sake of that particular issue? Sure. But we have to be also very careful with that because um, we might be then seen by others to align with them in ways that we are not seeking to. So I think that there's some wisdom required in that. And again, you know, anything that is not of faith is sin. And so if we are going against our conscience that we uh, believe to be informed by scripture, then that's problematic. And I don't believe that we should do that. Uh, It might be that our conscience needs to be differently informed by the word of God. Uh, We might have an overactive or sensitive or tender conscience or, or, or something of that nature. But uh, I don't believe it's good to go against conscience as we've understood it to be informed by the word of God. And if that means we need to draw a line somewhere, then 
then we should do that. Um, I don't know if this is a helpful analogy or not. We were talking a little bit before we started recording about our different uh, educational choices for mm-hmm. our children. And you might feel free in your conscience to educate your children one way, whereas for me, I would not feel free in my conscience to do that or vice versa. And you'll know I'm not saying which educational choice we've chosen. I'm just, uh, and so. Unfortunately for you, I've talked about You've talked about other it. Pastors. Okay, well, fine. In the last, in the last sure. eight episodes, we've talked about educational okay, choice. Okay, okay. I'm sure twice, whether it makes it into the podcast or not. Okay. So then, I think most listeners would know that my kids are educated okay, in the public okay, system. Okay, that's fine. So, I, yeah. yeah, and Sorry, if you want it, that's okay. You, I didn't mean to. No, that's quite, yeah. all right. I don't mind being uttered. I just didn't want to do that to you. It's all good. Yeah. Um, but I, I would, my wife and I would genuinely before the Lord say that this goes against our conscience that we mm. don't want our children educated in this environment and in this manner mm-hmm. and that's where we land on that issue we draw a pretty hard line and uh that does that mean i believe you're sinning by doing what you're doing no yeah uh, might we have a robust conversation about why you think your idea in way is the way to go and my way is the way to go sure but that for me is a line that i'm just I don't feel free in my conscience to, to cross. And yes, there are other lines like that that I would draw on sort of a local church level as well uh, that I wouldn't uh, engage in. And then there's some, again, I'm willing to hold in an open hand um, because there are brothers and sisters who, who disagree. So, And you, you talked in a different conversation this, this evening about context and how much sure. it, it matters, right? And so, um, you know, in, our, in my family's context, there's no Christian school close by. Absolutely. Right. And so then suddenly it's like, well, that option doesn't exist. And, you know, we live in Muskoka, which is a fairly, for all of the changes in the world is still a fairly conservative environment. I know my daughter is going into grade four at the time of recording. Yes. Um, Maybe she'll be in grade six by the time. (laughs) um, You know, but we last year, there was a health unit, which is, you know, the unit most Christian parents dread in public sure, school said, oh gosh, sure. here we go. What are we going to do? Yeah. And we got this beautifully worded letter from the teacher explaining exactly what they were going to be talking about Good. in the health unit um, and saying, you know, if you've got any concerns, please approach me before. I want to honor personal, con- like, I think Good the teacher her. must have the teacher had him. some experience. Yeah, I was a female teacher, but must have had some experience in the past mm-hmm. with something because they were so careful okay. with, with okay. all their students sure. of all sorts sure. of backgrounds. There's a, um, there's a diversity of students in my yeah. daughter's class. Sure. And so, uh, you know, we were really impressed and yeah. we were expecting to have to go fight for our daughter's right to step out of class if she needed to. Sure. We didn't have to. Sure. And, and it was pleasantly surprising, which Good. in this day and age, it was like, oh, right. That's yeah, a win, sure. Right? That and is. So, yeah. And, and there's praise. other stuff at school where, you know, I've sure. made this joke before, but, you know, we got in trouble in kindergarten because uh, we got a text from a parent just after the Christmas holidays saying, okay. you know, we need to know how you uh, your family feels about Easter Bunny because your daughter told the entire class that Santa was okay. Real. Wow! All right, like, <laughs> you would okay. get into trouble for that. <laughs> like, here's a, here's a hard line in the sand. I don't sure. lie to my children. Sure. There's things I don't tell them. Yes, but I don't because it's not age appropriate. But right. if they ask if Santa's real, I have I'm, to tell them. The sure, truth because that. Uh, right. I don't right. ever want them to doubt that what I'm telling them about Jesus isn't real. Absolutely, because. Jesus does much stranger things in scripture than coming down my chimney, right? Like he <laughs> sure. brings people back from the dead. That's right. That's they right. They have to trust that's real. Yes, I can't that's lie right. to them. That's right. So anyways, it's, it's, but it's a conviction matter. It's a personal sure, conscience absolutely. issue. Um, and I can, I appreciate that. And I'm someone who's not afraid of those conversations. No. And, and obviously not because you're willing to host these transformation, right. Like, uh, yeah. Cultural transformation. And get emails and from this. people if they're upset about it. Absolutely. So far so good, but yeah, well, after that, this podcast that, comes out. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, time will tell, but <laughs> um, I enjoy those conversations as well. And where I think we go off the rails though, is if I was to then say either something to you or about you, um, based on your educational choices for your children mm. that would say or imply something about whether or not you were genuinely a Christian. Mm. That I think has been the issue or one of the issues in these last two years or so yeah. is people calling into question someone's faithfulness to Christ based on their uh, their conscience and their convictions on certain matters that I do believe Christians have freedom to disagree on. Mm-hmm. And if I was to treat you that way, I think that would be a grievous sin. And that would be stirring up division. If I was to have a conversation through the rest of this week mm-hmm. about 
I can't believe NBC would hire someone who, who would educate their children, their the children that school, way yeah. when the whole point of NBC is rooted in faith and family. Why would they? Yeah. That would be a terrible thing to do. Mm. And I believe that's where that would be a stirring up of division, where I'm taking my conviction on a certain matter and now I'm beginning to sully your reputation mm -hmm. on something that is not a primary issue. And so at the end of the conversation, even if we had a robust and, uh, you know, and a debate about it, I would still want to look at you and see a brother in the mm -hmm. Lord who will sit down at the marriage supper of yeah. the Lamb, even yeah. though we had differences on maybe what church we went to or yeah. when to baptize or, you know, how to educate children. Or, sure, right? yeah, yeah, or, yeah, issues. absolutely. Yeah. So that I believe is the issue is that we can hold, and, and that's what I was trying to get at with that Francis Schaeffer quotation, which I think is brilliant. Yeah. The way that we have our differences should be different from the way the world has its differences. And that observable love, even while we have them, really matters. I, uh, very early on in the pandemic, uh, turned to our pastor, who's a friend of mine, and I said, I'm just so excited because I think God's providing an opportunity for the church to show our true colors and who we really are. Oh and I don't know that that statement was wrong, sure. but it wasn't what I meant. No, you know, I, I was hoping I get that, it. you know, my wife and I... Uh, it didn't happen. So we're not heroes, but you know, you, you hear about, you know, Christians going into Rome and caring for people who are plague ridden and things sure, like that. And so absolutely. We had this conversation about like, who, like, does one of us do that if right, we're called to, right. and, you know, it's kind of a, I don't know the right word that I want to say here. It's, it's a kind of a weird thing to think about, sure. but we also have these weird conversations about things we love to think about yeah. that, that could have been right. I mean, been, we we sure. had people in our lives who were telling us to prep for six months of no food in the grocery stores. We're sure. Going, do we buy six months worth of spaghetti? I sure. don't even know that we have space for that in sure. our freezer sure. or wherever sure. we store spaghetti. There's so many folks who love the Lord, yes. but unlike you and I are terrified of these conversations. Yeah. Because, and I, I think to give them credit, like as much as it is possible, if you live at peace with, with people, yeah, right? And right. so that's, you could argue from scripture that, well, I'm just trying to get along with everybody. I want to be peaceful. Sure. I don't want to. And yet sometimes we're called to step up and we're called to say, yes you know, this or that. And you mentioned it tonight that sometimes there might be people who are called to be litigants and say, sure. this thing happened. And, and, you know, to be honest, that happens more often than it should, sure. or sorry, not as much as it should, sure. that people just let it happen and they don't say this they don't isn't say okay. Anything. I think it's important to remember here as you're saying that, and I appreciate that you are, that Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the peace keepers. Mm. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. Mm. And that drives us to uncomfortable territory or ought to, because that might mean we have to have a difficult conversation. And that might mean someone needs to have a difficult conversation with us. But ours is a ministry of reconciliation. Mm. And if God in Christ can reconcile his enemies to himself, then certainly the gospel also shows us and empowers us to understand how it is that we might be reconciled with one another when we sin against one another or, you know, when we confront one another or those types of things. And so I understand, yeah, that there's a, uh, and maybe there's a, and I probably imbibe this, I'm not originally from Canada, yeah. I'm from Scotland, but I'm probably more Canadian than Scottish culturally now. Um, and I think that there is some of that, you know, Canadian stereotype that's mm. true and we imbibe even in the church and I'm sure I'm guilty of it as well, where we don't want to have that honest conversation. And, uh, and maybe it's because we're, uh, we don't know how, or we're afraid of how the other person might respond or, you know, some people listening to this, some people at NBC grew up in environments where churches divided over eschatology. Right. And so they saw fights about things in the church and maybe just don't want to have those conversations about those issues, which by the way, on the topic of eschatology, we don't because of the <laughs> division and infighting that happened as a result. And so we just kind of stop yeah. and then we don't even talk or teach about these different types yeah. of things because we're afraid of having conversations, but we, I don't, we can't afford to now because we're being pressed in yeah. on all these different sides with all of these different issues. And if we don't learn how to have difficult conversations with one another without biting and devouring one another, then I'm not sure what will happen going forward. It might, it might, it might not be pretty, um, but it's important for us to learn 
with proverbial wisdom, with the help of the Spirit, just gentleness, humility, peace, uh, compassion, forbearance, long-suffering, all of these one-anothers, right, that yeah. we have in the New Testament that the church needs while we're being sanctified, waiting for the day when we are presented to Christ without spot or wrinkle or blemish. Yeah, I think I'm excited to one day be in heaven and a lot of these issues that we are discussing right now are just not going to matter Absolutely, we're God. Absolutely. And, you know, it's going to be very, very, very insignificant sure. whether the sure. earth was created in seven literal days or right. seven whatever, you sure. know, even by saying that people are going to get up in arms in their sure. armchairs and go, oh, Absolutely. you can't say that. But sure. I, I will know at that point how God did it yes. and I'm not going to care at the same time because he will be so worthy of honor and sure. praise. Sure. That it's just not, it's not a thing. And uh, yeah, and listen, Sean, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank I you. know that you have just given endlessly and we appreciate you and your ministry. Happy to do it. And, Thanks uh, for yeah. having me. Thanks for all the work that you've done and putting on these uh, uh, seminars and the podcast, the follow-up. I hope that they're and pray that they will be a blessing to people. I'll say it again. Thank you so much, Sean, for your intentional thoughts about unity and grace. We appreciate you so much. All right. We are ready to go. That is it for season one. Thank you so much to everyone for participating in this first year of Transforming Culture. We look forward to recording some more sessions next summer at NBC, and we'd encourage you to stay tuned for next year in the fall when we bring out our second season of this podcast. As always, if you've enjoyed listening to today's episode, please do share it with a friend, subscribe on your favorite podcast app, or give us a like on social media. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Transforming Culture is a production of Muskoka Bible Center. It's hosted and produced by Luke LaRock. Editing, sound design, and mixing by Abhishek Varghese. Audio and technical support from Charles West and the Summer 2022 AV Team. The theme song is Citizens by John Guerra. Graphic design by Christina tabakel Holtz. This is the end of Season 1, and so we will look forward to seeing you next year when we release Season 2 of Transforming Culture after the summer at MBC. I need to know there is justice And it will roll in abundance And that you're building a city When we arrive as immigrants And you call us citizens And you welcome us out